afternoon. This is Cherishing Scripture Podcast here at Brandon Baptist Tabernacle. And uh, we're going to start with the book of James. Um, any guys, any ideas on how James, or why James was written, stuff like that? Who James is? Well, let's, let's, let's start with uh, this verse number one. Start with talking about uh, James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes, which are scattered abroad. Greeting. Now, a lot of debate of is wondering who the, the author is. Some say it's uh, James the Less, and we have um, the other James, and then we have, we all know is possibly the most likely writer is the brother, or the half-brother of Jesus, who is, uh, some, some would say, is uh, the just, James the Just. Anybody else want to collaborate on that? What do you, what do you think about who the authentic writer of this could be? It kind of leaves in a little bit of a background of, of a, Sort of the mindset, personality of what this book might be about. Anybody, any ideas of of uh, who it could be? Well, uh, the book was written roughly around 65 A.D., and uh, James, the half brother of Jesus, could was the only one who was probably alive and you know the only capable of writing the book. So that gives a good insight, and also. Uh, just the Jewish culture behind this book is very strong. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I would say as well that um, if you look at it as the aspect of being the brother of Jesus, it makes a lot of sense uh, for a man who would have, or the half-brother rather, a man who would have seen the ministry of Jesus uh, probably was one of the ones that uh, did not fully uh, acknowledged Jesus's ministry right away, uh, but later, after his resurrection, realized that you know this this is the Christ, uh, that this was the Christ, and then it would make sense that later on he would go to write a book, uh, in this book, to written. Uh, many will say that it's written to preachers, uh, so to me that would make a lot of sense being the half brother of Jesus. Makes sense. Makes sense. John seven five talks about how um, through no man that doth anything in secret. He is, uh, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. Uh, it goes down in verse uh, number five, for neither did his brethren believe in him. Hmm. And uh, a lot of the evidence that his blood kin, half-brothers and half-sisters, didn't get on board or did not follow his ministry until after his resurrection. That, uh, that would uh, explain it. He probably got on board during Paul's ministry. And, uh, and actually, after he getting getting saved, he... Uh, um, Followed Christ. It, it's most likely it could have been him. Yeah, and also in Mark six, uh, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees basically tell Jesus, "They're like, are not your brothers and sisters with us?" Paraphrasing, and uh, there's a lot of debate, and you know, with some early church scholars and uh, Catholic scholars and things of that that nature, trying to uh, bring in Mariolatry and the worship of Mary. But I do believe that Jesus had brothers and sisters, half-brothers and sisters, from uh, Mary, which would eliminate the Catholic doctrine of total life abstinence of Mary. And uh, I, I think that scripture very well uh, clears that up for us. And uh, there are some debates on, on the word Adelphos, or brother, in Greek. And, you know, in the context of Mark 6, it's very clear that they're, t they're talking about the brothers and sisters and the mother of Jesus. And uh, 
One of them was James. Yeah, I think uh, one thing I definitely interesting I learned about James when I was doing some background research on him, and uh, one of the things is is that he was a a, a great man of prayer. They said that uh, when James would, you know, when you would see James and you would look at his knees, the calluses was so thick they looked like camel knees, mm-hmm. and uh, even in his death he was still uh, they were beating him to death, you know, and uh, still praying for the people who were beating him. So I think James is. Uh, you know, it's definitely going to be an interesting book. I'm definitely excited to see what he says uh, throughout the scripture. I don't, I don't remember where it was I read it, but there's a there's somewhere that they actually called James Old Camel Knees. Oh yeah, yeah, that was his <laughs> nickname. They called him Old Camel Knees because he was such a man of prayer. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. I, mean, I agree with all that. I, th- I think uh, you know, just as a secondary uh, follow up there, also you know, the verse that you quoted. Um, one of you guys, I think it was, maybe it was you, Jesse, that quoted the verse, uh, you know, are, are not his brethren and sisters with us today? And in that same immediate context, you remember that Jesus actually made the statement, you know, who are my, who are my mother, my brothers, my sisters? And the next statement that he made was, they that do the will of my Father which is in heaven. Right. And so he laid out the concept of lordship early. Hmm. And then if you notice James 1.1, uh, James, who is, I think we can confirm pretty responsibly, he's the half-brother of Christ, but he says James, a servant, which is that famous word, doulos, and um, a servant of God and of the Lord, Jesus Christ. So, you know, the, uh, the concept of lordship came to, a, uh, came to a, it came pretty close to home, even for the, uh, you know, for Mary. I think she had to accept Jesus as Lord, even though she was his mother. She understood that he had to be her savior, and um, and that set the pattern. I think for his brothers and his sisters, his half brothers and half sisters that were produced from the relationship of Joseph and Mary later, that uh, after the resurrection, especially, they did finally bow to the lordship of Christ, which is synonymous with salvation. So, excellent opening verse, that's for sure. Oh yeah, it is. no doubt. I agree. So one thing I definitely want to ask, you know, especially before we get on to the other questions, is, um, you know, it mentions the 12, tri- or the 12 tribes scattered abroad. So what do you guys think? What, what do you guys think the idea of the 12 tribes? I, I, when I was reading and doing more background on it, I saw that a lot of um, I, the Jews read, used it as a, almost as a figure of speech almost, and uh, different ideas that people had. And I, um, during this time, I mean, Jews were scattered pretty much all over the place. Um, and then even at one point, Jesus kind of, when he mentions it, he mentions it as the people as a whole. So, mm-hmm. and what are you guys' thoughts on the 12 tribes and, you know, scattered around and doing it like that? Yeah, well, I think very clearly that that tells you, first of all, that this was definitely uh, written towards the Jewish people. Um, it was definitely aimed towards that audience, uh, and hence the reason he would say that. Um, and I believe that it tells you as well, it kind of further goes back to what we were talking about, James being the half-brother of Jesus. It uh, adds another confirmation to it that uh, definitely he was a Jew, um, and he was writing to Jews in this book. I think another thing that's important to remember whenever you are reading Scripture and uh, you're just kind of soaking it all in is to put yourself in the situations they were. So James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. So they didn't meet together Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night like we do. It, there was actual persecution where people were fearing for their lives. They had to, you know, kind of meet underground 
I guess you could say, meeting, meet in uh, hidden places where, because the gospel was not welcome, especially in Jewish culture. They thought it was heresy. That's why they crucified Jesus. And so despite all that, we have this Bible now. We have the book of James, and we see that the word did prevail and that the gospel was not quenched. Right, and to add on to that, actually, uh, with the actual spreading of the gospel, uh, and persecution that became because originally God said he wanted them to spread it out to the world uh, and they were kind of staying centralized in one area and then God through persecution was able to spread the gospel out uh, and then even in the Bible and other books you read about uh, Paul would say that uh, thank so-and-so because they would open their doors uh, oftentimes as Nathan said that it wasn't necessarily that uh, church was held in a building that was named, you know, the Tabernacle or the Church of Christ at Antioch or anything like that, but rather it was uh, any church member that could open their door, they would go in and they would have fellowship there, uh, which really makes sense when you break down the word church and what the Greek word for church actually means. That's good. Yeah, for sure. I think the Jews spent, have spent more time scattered than they have been gathered together. Uh, if you look at their whole history, you know, the most identifying description of them is scattered uh, because, you know, you have, the, you have them as a family in the book of Genesis and then they turn, you know, quickly into a nation and then the book of Exodus begins. And, and, um, uh, but in the latter portion of Genesis, they're scattered in Egypt and then they're, um, they spend a little bit of time in the promised land and then you have the, the diasporas, you know, where the, the Syrians and the Babylonians and such, they take them out of their homeland. And even today, you know, there are, um, my understanding of it is there's more Jews in the United States than there are in Israel. Wow. Uh, they're scattered all over the world even today. Uh, but what's different about them is, uh, you know, we have a melting pot of cultures in the United States. We have African Americans, Native Americans. We have Chinese Americans. We have all these people that have this hyphenated Americanism. And, um, but the Jews, we never call them Jewish Americans. They're just Jews because wherever they're scattered, they never amalgamate to that culture. They always stay unique and stay different. And the reason why is because I think the ultimate promise to the Jew, um, and even it's a, it's a barometer for the church, is we're looking for the regathering of the Jews. And so uh, James got it. He understood exactly uh, the condition that his brothers and sisters were in when, uh, when they were scattered abroad. And uh, just another note also, this, this opens up, you know, in such a Hebrew manner, you know, a Jewish culture in that day. They always signed the letter first. And so, you know, all of these uh, general epistles, church epistles, so on and so forth, they always start out with the author's name, you know, of course, except for Hebrews. And uh, so James, a servant of God, you know, we signed the letter at the bottom of the letter. They always signed it first. Makes better sense to me. You know, then you know who's writing, you know, exactly what they're, uh, you know, what they're going to be writing about. Right. And to add on that, I, when I speak to the young people, I tell them, you know, uh, when I read a letter, uh, if it doesn't have a to uh, or if it doesn't have a from, if it doesn't have the author's name on it, uh, it's hard to determine what the message is. Uh, for example, if my mother was to write me a letter and tell her, tell her, tell me how proud she is of me and how much she appreciates me and what I'm doing, uh, that means something completely different than if my wife was to write, write me a letter or if a friend was to write me a letter. So definitely in the Hebrew and in the Jewish culture, it made a lot of sense to sign it in the beginning because once you understand James, uh, once you understand who he was, 
uh, what people called him, how he was described, uh, then you can better understand his compassion uh, and why he would write the book to people uh, and why he felt so urgent in this book to write the topics that he did. And back in Acts 15, him being on the council with Peter and Paul and their endorsement for this letter started way back then to reach the Jews, even before they were Jewish Christians. Yep. Um, it to was, the Jew first. And uh, that was the main emphasis, to reach their people. And uh, <clears throat> it eventually had spilled over to uh, those that were saved under the ministries of Peter and Paul, but uh, James had a spearhead in this ministry. And, uh, uh, and a lot of historians say this could be the first official New Testament book mm-hmm. that was written. Yeah. yeah, that definitely makes sense. I mean, once again, I mean, think about it. Uh, who better to say, hey, that this Jesus was the Messiah than the half-brother of Jesus? Yeah. I mean, who could better send to the Jewish people, like, look, I had the same earthly father, and I had the same mother, uh, but he was not born of my father. Uh, he was born of God, and I can say that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. It's good. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, one of the things about this specific podcast that we're going to do is we've actually got a list of, uh, of, of questions that have come up as through reading it. And uh, one of those first ones there are, what are trials and where are God in my trials? And, uh, and you know, I was text me and Nathan talk back and forth between the week, and he actually found something interesting about, you know, the word temptation and trials and stuff like that. And... Um, and if you want to, you know, share that, and tell us about it, see what you, fi- what you found. Well, uh, verse number two of James chapter one, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. And uh, the word temptation kind of has dwindled in meaning since uh, the translation of the King James Version. And uh, we kind of viewed temptations as, you know, uh, sinful desires. But that's, that's not the case. The word temptation... Uh, really does mean trials or testings. That's right. And so mm-hmm. if you read verse number two with, with that, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse testings or trials. See, one of the things that we're going to get to later is the difference between temptation as far as the flesh and temptations from God. Right. And it's also important to remember that uh, if you determine and if you look in a very black and white way and say all temptation is evil, all temptation is sin, uh, then you're labeling Christ uh, as a sinner because the Bible says that Jesus was tempted, yet he did not sin. Uh, So it's important to remember that the word temptation now has such a negative uh, connotation. We've been talking in church about judgment and how judgment has just that not negative connotation. Uh, but that doesn't, it doesn't always mean that. Not just, just because it's a temptation doesn't always mean uh, that it's a sin or that it's a negative thing. No. You have to look back to the source. Right, exactly. Yeah, and in this passage he talks about, he actually, you know, we were going through this in class. You, you guys remember... Um, Oh, what was it, uh, last Monday night? We were going through this at uh, Tampa Theological Institute in class about uh, words that are difficult in the King James Version are often defined in the immediate context. And there it is. That's the principle. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations. That's the word. And here's the definition. Knowing that this, the trying of your faith. Hmm. So temptation here is not a solicitation to evil. It is a test of your faith, a trying of your Hmm. faith. And, uh, and then he goes on and says uh, that trying of your faith 
if it is genuine faith, if it's actual faith, it's going to produce, um, what does he say here, uh, patience. And patience is going to have a perfect work that you may be perfect and entire wanting nothing. Mm -hmm. So if you let him test your faith and your faith stands the test, then patience is going to be the fruit of, of that test. I think that's exactly what he means here. It's right. not a solicitation to evil because God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Right. So uh, right. it's pretty clear, I think, in, in the passage. As far as the second part to that question, where is God in my trials? So often, if we're going through something, whether it be financial problems or, you know, relationship problems or whatever you're going through, you kind of, you look to God and you're like, what are you doing? Where are you? Aren't, aren't you going to be helping me out? But that's, that's not usually what Christianity is about. It's not always, you know, running to your hour of need to give you a handout. It's always God uh, molding you. God is the potter we are the clay he's molding you into the person that he wants you to be so that he can get glory from your life and that way souls in in the end result will be saved through your trials right and uh, to add on to that i remember uh, when nathan sent me this list and i read it and it said and where is god in my trials i don't know about you guys uh, but, but the first thing i thought about the first person i thought about was job I thought about Job when Job got tested uh, by the devil himself and lost everything. He never uh, cursed God, but at the end of it, he really started to ask God. He's like, where were you? Oh, where were you when all this happened? And I just remember and I, when I read this, I went back and read the book of Job, and God, for almost three chapters, comes back at him and says, hey, where were you when I created the earth? Where were you when I did this? Where were you when I delivered Israel? Uh, he, he mentions all these things. Where were you when I did X, Y, and Z? Uh, and Job really realized that, man, he was, he was always there. He was never gone. Uh, it reminds me of the poem uh, that talks about the footprints in the sand. And the person says, well, in the hardest times of my life, it seems like there was only one set of footprints. God, I, I see two sets. Sometimes I see one set. But in the hard times, there's only one set. Where were you in those hard times? Uh, and the author goes on to write that it was in those hard times, oftentimes, that God is carrying us, that God is taking us uh, and carrying us through whatever trial we have. That's right. So really, it's kind of like the, the brief biography of Job, right? Right. The trying of my faith worketh patience. And uh, that's really the 42 chapters of Job in, in just a few words. Yeah, His exactly. faith was tried, and he had to learn to be patient. And you know, one thing I think, especially a lot of people tend to forget about trials is, you know, and kind of like Zach said, you know, he's, he's always been there. God's never left, you know. He's, even if it's, you know, even if it's silent, you don't hear him. You know, he's still there. Yeah. He's still doing something behind the scene. I often, you know, when I think of the word trials, I always go back to uh, Isaiah 43 and verse 2. He talks about how he's, you know, through the waters, you know, he's going to be there because it's not going to, it won't overflow you. He's there. Fires won't burn you. He's going to be there for you. You know, so yep. even, you know, from the very, very beginning, you see God always being with his people. Yeah, definitely. Um, and that kind of goes back to the omnipotence of God. Yeah. Uh, and it goes back to he didn't just know you in eternity past. Uh, he knows you in the present, and, and he even knows you uh, in eternity future. Uh, that God knew you before you were ever formed in the womb, the Bible says. Uh, and he knows you when you're going through every trial. The Bible says he knows when a sparrow falls from the ground. Uh, he definitely knows where you are. Uh, no matter what situation you're in, where you think you are, 
even if you feel like you're all alone, oftentimes uh, that feeling of us being alone is not because God's left us, but rather that we have kind of turned our attention away from God. Uh, we're kind of, as the Bible would say, we're looking at it at sea level or below sea level. Uh, we're not looking at it from how God's looking at it. Yeah, well. Um, but I do like I do like the idea. The trials thing is, uh, I like the idea of God always being there. You know, it it brings that comfort, you know, going through trials. Right. So I guess I would take it right to the next question. What does what do my trials produce that would make God so interested in my testing? Um, and, you know, I was also, I mean, Nathan also discussed this part a couple of days ago with being, you know, through going through trials, going through testing. It's not only, um, you know, always for us. It could be to help somebody later on down the road. You know, we've been there at a certain point, you know, and we could help. Um, whether it's financial issues or, you know, struggling with some kind of thing, or even to make us a better person for him, you know. Right. Yeah, I mean, how much, how different is it uh, for me to hear? Uh, I tell people this all the time. There's kids I can go up to and I can say, hey, I, I feel sorry for you, you know. I don't know what it's like. I can't speak from the uh, feeling of a split home. I can't speak from my parents not being together. I can't speak from an alcoholic father because that's not experiences I've had. And oftentimes things will get placed in our life. So one day, someone that crosses our path, we can be like, you know what? I know where you are. I know how you feel. And I've been there. Um, and I can say that God is faithful and God will bring you through that. Exactly. I agree. I, I like the note here, you know, a very minimal notation that's made here. Let patience have her perfect work. It actually places patience in the in the female gender there, and I don't think that's uh, unintentional. I think it's very intentional because um, you know wisdom in the Old Testament is, is same way. Uh, wisdom is called she, her, so on and so forth. And um, and I think the reason why is because patience here is depicted as being the submissive gender. Patience is not going to overpower you it's not going to just come in and just you know assume control um if you want to be in control patience will let you be in control but obviously the outcome is not going to be good uh, but if we want to listen to the passive submissive voice of patience and let her that's i think the wording there is very perfect let her allow her to have her perfect work um that in and of itself takes a certain level of submissiveness on our part to a uh, to a trial or to, to a difficulty. And I think it's going to take wisdom. That's why verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that give it to all men liberally and upbraideth not, it, it shall be given him. The promise there is not, you know, uh, just uh, an open-handed promise. It's not a blank check. Uh, it's talking about when you're going through trial, when your faith is being tried, is when you will need wisdom the most, and that's when you should ask for it the most. That's good. Definitely, um, you know, thinking about upon some of these questions, one of the things that came to my mind is um, one thing, like asking how long, you know, how long a trial is. Or I, I immediately brought back to the uh, message you preached on in Psalms where David was asking, you know, how long, how long, you know, until I see a difference. But by the way, if anybody you want to hear those messages you can always check them out at our website he's got a full list of all uh, all the songs we've done so far but um, definitely it you know it 
it, patience is definitely a major role that, you know, I think it's a hard thing to master and hard thing to get. It is. I, I definitely think, you know, you got to have it. Sure. You know, I've also heard it described by different preachers as um, the furnace with gold. Uh, and they mentioned how a person, when they smelt down an ore and they purify it, how they know that the uh, the gold is perfect is they can scrape off the impurities. They'll turn up the temperature some more, scrape off the impurities, and they'll keep turning it up until eventually all the impurities are gone uh, and they can see your reflections. And I've heard it explained this way, and it made sense to me that sometimes God will turn the temperatures up in your life or will allow the temperatures to be turned up in your life so that he can scrape away the uh, goss, scrape away the junk that's on top so that one day he, when he looks in, he can see his reflection in your life. Yeah, going back to Ephesians 1, talking about our purpose, the whole purpose of life, even after salvation, why did he keep us here? And it talks about how uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who have blessed us in all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before him in love, having predestinated us to adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. And it's all by him. It was all, you know, even from the beginning, it was all, it was started started with him. He's continued that work through us because it's just all to him, mm-hmm. and uh, we get to be a part of that. Even if it's a little suffering here on earth, it's just a drop in the bucket compared to what eternity is going to be. And yeah. having that perspective <clears throat> is going to give a little light at the end of the tunnel that it's not going to be for long. Yeah, that definitely makes sense, and it almost goes back to. I believe it was Joseph, correct, when he said, uh, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it goes back to that song that we all sing, that it's for his good, or for my good, and for his glory. Oftentimes, uh, something happens not to punish us, but rather to help us and to ultimately glorify him in the end. Hmm. Was it Paul who was talking about, uh, you know, if, if this be in vain, if Christianity is in vain, then we are of all men most miserable. Mm. If, if this wasn't true, I mean, the atheists will mock us and, and they'll try to say you're crazy, but it's true. It's, it's the truth. It's the gospel truth. And uh, I don't mind being a pawn of the gospel. I don't mind being one aspect that the Lord knows that he can always use me. And that's the thing, God's going to accomplish his will, no matter if we're in it or not. But if you just allow him to, you know, use your life and uh, make you a bondservant, you'll, you'll have so much relief, so much joy. Uh, you know, it's, it's the best thing that can happen to you. Mm-hmm. I agree. Excellent. Yeah. Next one, because God is so involved with our lives, does he give us an insight of to his plan? And... Hmm. Uh, it's a tough one. Yeah, very tough one. I think Jesse kind of gave it a little bit there, you know, or Nathan did as well. It's all part of, you know, what his plans to accomplish. Well, yeah. if you look at verse 5, it says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given to him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. So it, I, can, I think that might go into uh, 
a later question, but God will give you wisdom. It might not be all the wisdom that you're asking for, but he'll give you wisdom at least to know that what you're going through is, is more than you can see, and it's more than, uh, more than you have knowledge about all the impacts it's going to make. I mean, if you think about it this way, when you spend currency, let's say you go to McDonald's and you buy a cheeseburger, you're probably affecting thousands of people. That, that cashier is going to make money off you going to buy a cheeseburger. The cooks are going to make money. They're going to go feed their families. They're going to go and they're going to buy other things from Publix or Walmart or whatever, Winn-Dixie. And it's, it's going to have a ripple effect. A ripple effect. And uh, that's one way to look at this. God has a plan, and you're part of that plan. You're part of that ripple that's going to go out. If you throw a rock in a, in a lake, it starts out with one, then two, then three. And the farther down the line it goes, the more intense and, and the farther uh, or the, the less distance there is between the ripples. And I, I believe that that is a picture of God's plan on how just just one little move can impact hundreds of people, thousands of people, and it goes way beyond our our ability to to comprehend because we are not God. We can't actually see the blueprints, but we can have at least wisdom as for the purpose of our life. Yeah, that's good. Uh, two things. One, I actually have a question: is uh, how much of it do you think uh, the fact that we don't receive the wisdom sometimes that we think we need or we want how much how many times do you guys think that it often comes because uh verse six that little two words that sometimes can be passed over is where we stumble is the nothing wavering is the fact that uh, many times we come to faith or come to god and we ask him hey god uh, can you do this for me uh, but yet our god can you show me this can you please help me here but yet, at the same time, we're, we're not exhibiting that faith. Uh, we're not showing that faith in God that, you know what, God, I know you're going to do it. I'm coming to you in faith that you're going to do it, uh, and I'm expecting you to do it. But rather, we come to God, hey, God, I want you to do this. But if you don't do this, I have a plan B and a plan C already planned out in my mind. Yeah, I think that's the wavering part, you know, in the... Uh uh, yeah, I was just glancing here at verse number 12. You know, he talked about enduring temptation, you know. So what he's presenting here is not pleasurable, you know, and the, and the nothing wavering part like you're referring to, Zach. Uh, it, it's the temptation for us to, you know, to want to defect or find some relief or get off from under the pressure of what God is doing in our lives. And uh, it is so at hand in the United States now, you know. Uh, I know for me, in, in my especially in my younger ministry, uh, um, you know, financial trials, um, you know, trials of friendship, trials of ministry, and those types of things, they tended to drive me to the Lord. But there are many of those that we can dismiss those, or we can dispose of those by you know running to the bank or using a credit card or whatever to get us out from under some uh, crisis of faith. And uh, I think that's the nothing wavering part. I really do. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we have to be willing to stay. In, in fact, you know, I was thinking about what you guys were talking about, the word patience. It's that word that means, you know, to bear up under the load. It has, it has the idea of I'm under the pressure. I'm in the cook, the, you know, the pressure cooker, and, and, uh, but I'm going to continue to perform. And so mm -hmm. um, it is not patience if things are going good. Right. You know, somebody was talking about 
submission in marriage one time. And, uh, you know, I heard the comment made that it's not submission when both of you agree. Submission only happens when there's a disagreement, you know. Right. And so that's the same way with patience. It's not patience if everything is going your way. It's when things are not going your way huh. is that you have to say, okay, I'm going to keep my nose to the grind, not be, verse 8, double-minded or what you talked about, wavering. Um, you know, that, that's key. That's right. key. Be a man. That's true. Uh, spiritual, a spiritual man. Now, question as well um, for you, maybe, or any of y'all, really. Uh, what do y'all think about the philosophy of, I, I've heard it said so many times, many times in jest, but as they always say, much is said in jest, to people that say, oh, don't ask God for patience, because if you ask God for patience, I hate that they're going to bring trials. That's one of my favorite things to hate, man. I hate, <laughs> I hate it when people say that. Don't pray for patience, because, you know, when God's, if you pray for patience, God's going to put you through trials. I think it's just so immature, you know. Right. Uh, we want to grow. You know, and if you uh, if you want to play, if you want to goof off and play, you get in a puddle. You right. splash around. If you want to just get dirty and play, but if you want to exercise, you got to get deep. Right. You got to get in a deep end of the pool. If you're going to stretch, if you're going to grow your muscle, your muscles, you have to you have to get into the deep end of the pool. And I think there's a lot of Christians when it comes to this subject, they want to stay in the shallow end of the pool. Right. And I agree with that. It almost, uh, to put a picture out there in your minds, it'd be like me going out in one of those little plastic one-foot kiddie pools uh, and telling you that I'm trying to learn how to swim. Uh, it would make no sense because when my belly's touching the bottom and I'm still head above water, uh, I'm not going to really learn how to swim. But it's many times you hear of people learn how to swim when they get shoved off in the deep end, and they'll fight for a little while, but eventually you'll learn how to swim. It'll kick in that all right, this is how you do it. This is how you stay above water. The perfect work that patience is in encouraging us to kind of focus on is not perfection in itself, but a maturity. Yeah, right. And, Teleos. And it, it's it's us when we come through the trial, of course, scathed and, and beaten and bruised, but we've learned from it if wisdom has been applied or divinely given, especially through God's Word. It seems like God has... Uh, a spotlight on scripture especially when we go to it in a time of need he's there he's he's that shepherd that leads us by still waters but uh it seems like uh th that maturity sometimes slow and sometimes it's somewhat fast for others mm -hmm. it happens you see growth in other christians who's you know you can see as a mature christian you see other young christians a storm on their horizon and say well this will make them or break them. Right. And uh, Very true. This, true. this book has the quintessential um, problems that even you and I face today. Um, even those who, um, who have unbridled speech, this, this covers it. Wrong attitudes, mm -hmm. doubt. Who, who, I, I can't count on two hands all the Christians I know that deal with doubt right now. Right. Um, not just salvation, that's, that's a big issue, but doubting their their capability right. whether because they're they're so self-critical and that's a sense in a sense a good thing but yeah. that can be crippling yeah but doubt strife mm -hmm. uh carnality shallow faith all these are dealt with in in this book and uh, even though this is still somewhat of an introduction in this chapter um he doesn't mix words when he said this is going to be hard 
right. and it's going to be painful and patience. It's almost like there's a picture of a pillow underneath a vice that's squeezing you, even though that as it gives you some relief. Yeah. Um, but reliance on that patience, it's mm-hmm. a it's somewhat of a comfort thing, and knowing who it's coming from. Mm-hmm. In the end, it's all from God. Yeah. Um, even though He's allowed it to happen because of either your foolishness or your sin or Satan's temptation, but nothing comes to any Christian without God's divine ruling. Right. And it's, a, it's an encouraging note that God wants us to be more like Him, but we can't get there without trials. Right. It's, this, uh, it's a wonderful book for those who want to become mature, for those who want to get out of the kiddie pool and into the deep end yeah. and, uh, and want to grow and want to be effective. And uh, what you do here on earth is determining what kind of uh, right. rewards, you, rewards you have in heaven and your effectiveness is depending on, determined on your spiritual capability. Right. Uh, and also a question for you guys. What do you guys think about uh, how much of the problem do you think comes from the fact that uh, they don't go to the right source? Uh, the fact that it says here, it says, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Um, oftentimes we'll go and we'll say, God, I need your wisdom, but we may go ask other people. We may go ask our peers, but the la- one of the last sources we ever go to is the book. Uh, one of the last sources we ever go to is the book when we say, all right, God, I'm going through this. What does your word say about this? What should I do about this? Right. How should I look at this situation? Right, that is the, the mark of an immature Christian is that God is their last resort. Right. Even though they may have gone through multiple trials already, um, it should be the natural instinct for that to be our first move. Yeah. Right. Our first I talked about that this morning in the message when she had spent all. Then she finds herself at the feet of Jesus, the woman with the issue of blood. And, uh, you know, there's a lesson there to be learned. You know, we, we, we can't wait that long. Right. Well, I don't know if I should ask this now or wait till it gets to the next question, but you know, since we're on the subject of patience, I know patience is, is a really hard thing to uh, for a lot of people. And if you guys have any, um, I guess patience is one thing I definitely struggle with a lot. Mm-hmm. I'm always ready for the next thing. I want it to happen quick, and I want it to happen now. And I'm sure there's others who are listening that are out there that are like that. You guys have any uh, tips on patience or, you know, mm-hmm. to help other <laughs> listeners that are struggling with the issue of I patience? I was so offended when uh, one of my mentors is Dr. Stennett Blue. And uh, Brother Blue is probably in his, at least his 50th year of ministry now. And um, uh, I coveted, you know, mature ministry, and I coveted uh, uh, the wisdom and the seasoning. That's the word I'm looking for. I really coveted that. And uh, I was so taken back and offended when Brother Blue told me, he said, the only way to be a 25-year preacher is to preach for 25 years. Yep. That's good. And the only cure to it, you know, the only cure for impatience is, um, you know, just uh, just staying at the task for a long time. You know, what's the Bible word? Long-suffering. It just means to suffer for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that kind of goes back to yesterday we went to a youth conference out at Westgate, and Pastor George Pert did something for the youth directors on um, on leadership. And he joked around at first. He's like, I don't know why they have me teaching this. Uh, he's like, because in all honesty, leadership is one of those things you're never going to master. And I think patience is something. It's one of those things you can always be growing. You can always be learning. It's not something you're going to absolutely say, all right, I know this guy has mastered patience, but it's rather something that you continually grow in. Uh, it's something that you exercise and you keep growing 
and keep growing as life goes on. And I think a problem uh, with our society today as a whole is the fact that uh, we've have so such this give me now, I want it right now, an instant gratification uh, mindset, right? You go to Burger King. Uh, this morning I went to McDonald's and I sat there for 15 minutes waiting for cookies. And I'm like, man, I'm about to go inside and see what's wrong. They need to give me my cookies so I can get to church. And it's just because we've gotten to this point where it's just I want it now and I want it I want it now and I don't want to wait for it. Um, and sometimes we, if we're not careful, we'll take that mentality uh, to spiritual things where we're like, God, I want this now and I don't want to wait for it. Right. Show me the baby, so to speak. I don't want to wait for the process. I don't want to see all the nitty gritty part. I just want to see the instant result. I think that's what it means, you know, later in the chapter here uh, when it talks about this temptation business. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust. I think what I'd say is this, you're drawn away from the, the work of patience. You know, it's not talking about uh, some kind of a, a lustful thought or some kind of an impulsive desire, you know, that may that may pop up in context. The temptation there is to to get away, you know, to get out from under the load, to get away from the the pressure of the situation. But, uh, you know, I definitely agree with what you guys are all saying. And some of the things, especially because I'm a very impatient person, you can ask both my parents. I'm always ready for the next step. But then you forget, you know, what's ahead of you. You know, there's other little things that's going to build you up to be ready. Mm -hmm. So I might not be ready now, but, you know, through patience, when that time comes or that next step in life does come, I'll be ready right. for it. And, you know, Paul a lot of times said working out, and he used the word, uh, used words related to exercise. And it makes me think, uh, if Nathan and I went down right now and I put 500 pounds on the bench press and said, all right, Nathan, bench this, he's not going to be able to do it, right? Why? No. Why? Because he hasn't worked up to that point. Is right. he going to be able to do it tomorrow? Right. Probably not, right? What is it going to take? It's going to take month after month. Repetition. year after year and after time which is patience once again then he'll eventually get up to that point where he can finally lift that load and move that load and the same thing with patience is you're not going to be able to go through a trial and just absolutely conquer it get through it right away sometimes it's going to take work it's going to take exercising it's going to take growing and then learning and then eventually you'll be able to conquer that and get past that and move on and the beauty about this is this is all personal. Um, God's relationship with you is purely on his relationship with you. If you're a, a newborn Christian and God gives you a trial, maybe it's because he thinks you're ready for this trial, whereas someone else who has a good life and doesn't really go through much for five or ten years, I mean, it. It's purely based on, uh, you know, what God thinks you can handle or, you know, what God thinks you're not ready for or just God is just sparing you for that time because there's something big down the road. And I mean, all this is, you know, related on a personal basis between you and God. Right. And that's the beauty of this book. Yeah. And it's like a lot of times, sometimes these verses will even be preached negatively. But uh, as Nathan just said, look at a trial as a happy thing, as James said, look at it as it's an opportunity for you to grow. Don't look at it as, oh, I'm being tried because I'm a sinner. I'm being tried because I've done something wrong. I've gone away from God. But rather think of it, hey, this trial's in my life to strengthen me. It's to grow me. It's to make me and mold me into what God would have me to be. I definitely agree. So I guess that goes right into the next question because the next question we have listed here deals kind of a little bit with more, more about patience. And this one is, 
How does double-mindedness affect all of man's ways and it relate and as it relates to the trial to trials and patience? It just and, obliterates it. Yeah, and you know, well, double-mindedness can be very. Um, it can destroy, I think, a Christian uh, relationship. You know, because it with God, double-mindedness is. Um, it's like um, one thing I can you can relate double-mindedness to is like praying with doubt. You know, asking God for a certain thing, but doubt, but doubting that He'll answer that prayer. You know, where does that get you? Right. Yeah. yeah so asking faith, nothing wavering. That's right. And it kind of goes back to it gives that picture of a guy sitting on a fence, right, straddling the fence. That's how I've always heard it growing up as being a fence straddle. When it talks about double-mindedness, and it says they're a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. I mean, you can't go uh, back and forth. You can't one minute be relying on God and then the next minute looking at the world and completely relying on what the world has to hand you. I definitely think double-mindedness, though, does affect a lot of, of our ways. And one of those things is I think double-mindedness can affect us also fellowship with one of another, um, especially. And I think that's why he kind of mentions wealth in the uh, in the chapter as well, talking about wealthy people. Um, you know, do we treat the people who are more wealthy in the church differently than we do the other one? And, you know, I think that's definitely, um, you shouldn't come to a church thinking like that. Jesus sees us all as one or all as the same, you know. So mm-hmm. definitely, I think double nines can affect your, your worship, your prayer, um, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, he also made a refer- reference here later in chapter 4, verse 8, draw nine to God and he'll what? Draw not draw nine to you. Mm-hmm. And he still goes on here, cleanse your hands, she sinners, and purify your hearts. You double minded. So double mindedness has a a link to sin. And mm-hmm. if you're that's the way it is. If you're not in the word, you're in sin in some way, shape or form. And if you're in the word, it'll actually keep you from sin in a sense, in a practical sense. It uh it does a cleansing effect. Mm. So it's uh, it is a choice. It is a being double-minded, of course. What we're saying here, it is a choice. But uh, Paul dealt with it. Paul said he dealt with the flesh. In uh, Romans seven, we have no right to say we have uh, more power than he does or any more strength than he does. So if he has as as great a spiritual man as he is or was. Um, we can't say that we can't have the same problems mm-hmm. of dealing with practical sin. So it's a it's an issue of daily maturing and a daily choice to draw nigh to God. Yeah, it kind of goes back to that thought of serving two masters. Mm-hmm. I mean, you really can't serve God and be focused on God and at the same time serve the world and be looking at the world's circumstances around you. Yeah, I think that pretty much does. Just that's a good description of double-mindedness there. You know, trying to serve two. Two things at one time, and it doesn't work. You know? Yeah, and I think that's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made the statement, you cannot serve God and mammon. I think yeah. the ultimate illustration of double-mindedness is where your money is. That's mm-hmm. why I think, you know, to answer the question here, why does he mention wealth is, is simply because uh, there is nothing more distracting than wealth. Right. And, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the illustration here, double-mindedness, you have one mind on God, and your your other mind on something else, two-minded is what it means. 
And so, you know, just keeping that fixed point, one mind on God, one mind on wealth, one mind on God, one mind on popularity. And that may change, but there's nothing that comes to mind more frequently than, you know, wealth issues. There's nothing more worrisome and cumbersome and scary. And, uh, and strangely, uh, or uh, actually ironically, that's what God uses in many cases to try us. He pulls the carpet out from under us financially sometimes. Yeah. Um, and I know that there's a lot of health and wealth gospel people that don't want to hear that. You know, that you know, oh, no, God wants you healthy, he wants you wealthy, he wants you wise. He prosperity wants you, gospel. Yeah, prosperity gospel. And so uh, uh, I, that's not what happened to Job. You know, I mean, going back to that reference, uh, God took every dime he had. And uh, yep. so, of course, it can happen. Moses went from, you know, from the from the uttermost to the guttermost. He went from being a uh, a son of an adopted son of Pharaoh to being a shepherd. No lowlier lifestyle than shepherding. Right. And that that happens in a lot. I mean, look at a lot of the men of God. Um, you have David, right? David yep. was a shepherd boy. I mean, a lot of them before they were ever great men, uh, they were uh, at a low position as a younger person. Um, or they were put in that position like Job was. Um, and like you said, it, it goes back to double-minded. It ultimately goes back to you can uh, have your focus on God or you can have your focus not on God, not completely on God is really what it boils down to. But the good news is, as Jesse referenced it later uh, in the book, when it talks about um, draw an eye unto God and he'll draw an eye unto you, it reminds me of what you said before in a message where you take one of your small steps uh, away from the world and towards God, and God takes one of his big steps towards you. Uh, and that's the encouraging thing is that if we decide to fix our mind on God, to fix our mindset to, you know what, I'm going to do the things that God wants me to do. I'm going to be focused on what God wants me to do and what God wants me to learn. Uh, then that's really when we'll see a changing point in our lives. Hmm. I agree. Any other I know we uh, kind of mentioned wealth a little bit, but the next question kind of goes with why does James in one in chapter one verses nine through eleven mention wealth? And kind of Pastor kind of touched on it a little bit, but anybody else got any thoughts about that? I think it just goes back to like Pastor said. I mean, uh, once the plug gets pulled out financially, uh, and you're dealing with nothing, I mean, you're really dealing uh, based on faith. Um, and that's why sometimes we call it like faith giving, right? Mm -hmm. It's because, yeah, I don't, I don't know where the money's going to come from for my bill. Yeah. But you know what? In faith, I'm still going to give it to God and I'm going to trust. Uh, and sometimes he'll test us in that way. And the Bible even says that some, and God sometimes doesn't give people more money because he knows he can't trust them with more money. Right. He knows that, that they can't do it. And I believe that every Christian will one day uh, somehow face a money I think that that's probably the most common. I mean, it's the one that the Bible always mentions, uh, and it's the most common between every person because what does every person care about? In some point, they care about money, right? They care about the house they have. How do you pay for that house? Money. How do you pay for the food you're going to eat? Money. So it all boils back down to money, um, which can really be labeled down as uh, it is amoral, but it really can be served as a God at the same time. Right. And uh, it, it says in verse number nine, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass and the flower thereof falleth and the grace of the, uh, the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. And I'm, I'm reminded personally of uh, the rich young ruler 
you know, he, he comes to Jesus and he says, uh, good master, what must I do to enter into the kingdom of heaven? And they go on in a dialogue of, uh, you know, I've, I've kept all the commandments. And Jesus says, go and sell all, all you have and give it to the poor and follow me. And he walks away ashamed because he couldn't do it. His money was, was too much to him. And uh, that's why it says it's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God because they have too much pride in themselves. They have too much uh, arrogance with their money that, uh, you know, they feel like they can buy everything. But there's one thing you can't buy, and that's salvation, and that's a relationship with God. God is not a respecter of persons. That's good, and like I said, I mean, you look in the Bible, there's a lot of people that had problems with money. Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, they lied, and Peter actually tells them that he didn't just say, you didn't just lie to me, you didn't lie to the church. He said, you lied to the Holy Spirit, you lied to the Holy Ghost. That's right. And it goes back to that uh, root problem, which is the love of money. Not money, but the love of money. Next one we got here is, does the flesh have its own temptations or trials? What do you guys think about that? As far as the flesh having its own temptations or its own trials. Let's start by defining the flesh as far as... Um, yeah, yeah. are you talking about the sin one. nature? Well, that's sort of a well, loaded question. Yeah. I, guess, I guess that will just go back to uh, the first question, you know, what are trials? And where is God in my trials? Well, there is an opposite side of that. Um... What are the fleshly trials that we go through? You know, we're not just the sin side, but the fact that we live in a fallen world. And, you know, our bodies are constantly going downhill, contrary to the evolution standpoint that everything should be going up. But everything is clearly going downhill. Why is there sickness and death and things like that? Well, it all, it all comes back to, you know, the flesh and the trials of the flesh. And some of them can be from God, you know, a sickness or an ailment. But ultimately, all everything that has to deal with, you know, our bodies and, you know, the wearing down goes back to sin and the flesh nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a, a difficulty that we find sometimes uh, in this is not that uh, I'm by no means attacking the King James Version or anything, but uh, as it's mentioned, uh, you mentioned in class on Monday, uh, is the... Greek language was such a beautiful language. It was so uh, vivid. It had such a great picture that sometimes uh, some of the words have lost part of its meaning, even today when the word is used in a completely different uh, way uh, than what it was originally intended for. Yeah, this word, it's, uh, it's the word sarks uh, in Greek, and it, the word flesh here, and it literally it's referring to the temptations of the flesh. And uh, and so, I, you know, I, I'm kind of on both sides of the fence on this one, I guess, because, uh, uh, you know, there are the the basic temptations of the flesh, which appeal to the eye gate, the ear gate, taste, touch, feel, all those types of things. But then I think in the context, you know, just, just leaving it in its context, I think here what he is referring to specifically uh, is the, the trial of your flesh here is the is the trial to you know to to want to get comfortable get out from under the temptation and get comfortable yeah and then then that would make perfect sense when it says you're drawn away you try to get from underneath the 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 pressure that you're under and then it says 
then of his own lust, and then it says, and he's enticed after he's drawn out. Yep. Yeah, a broad, a broad generality given to whatever problem or whatever potential problem that would cause you to get out right. from under that perfecting work. And sin, most of the time, is the easy way out. I mean, it's easy to, you know, like if you get a call of a neighbor in need and they need something, the easy way out is to say, sorry, I can't help you. But the the testing of God will say, no, I have to take time, take money, take whatever it needs to help out my neighbor. Mm, that That is a good, gener- uh, um, as was mentioned, uh, what is the what is the general uh, theme of what's going on in chapter one? Uh, I have to conclude is concerning the word of God. Mm-hmm. It's uh, mm-hmm. every good gift and every perfect gift coming from above. It talks about back in uh, where are we at verse eleven. Uh, no, it's, it's down in verse number eighteen. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, yeah. and then pure religion to follow this visit followers and. and uh, the Father is just to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and keep uh, himself unspotted from the world. And the Bible says that we are sanctified by his truth and kept kept unspotted uh, in that sense. And uh, be not doers of the word. And it's, it's there's a repetitive yeah. nature here. It's Constantly hear the what, word. What, what, what is the whole main theme of the temptation? Is it the perfecting work of what the word of God has for us? Mm-hmm. Or is it the whatever practical, personal sin that is keeping you from being changed by God's word? Right. It, what sin? And that is different for everybody. Yeah, you're drawn away from the pressure. The main drawn away from the word of God. The main, but the main problem is, if maturity is your goal, um, and it should be, if, if a, mature, a mature Christian, if that's if that's your desire to be like Christ. It is. Uh, it's going to take uh, time and and endurance, patience, patience. 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 Yeah. There <laughs> we go. There's patience. that word. There exactly. That's right. So, all right. I kind of think we're down to the last one. I mean, the, there is one that was above it. I guess we could have done both of those at the same time. But what was the question, real quick? We can maybe maybe we'll shoot it down. <laughs> because we are at war with the flesh, and we are also going through through trials of God. How can we give ourselves a chance? Uh, once again, James four, draw nigh unto me, and I'll draw nigh unto you. The only, right? the only, the only ammunition we have in this world is a set of the, the sword of the spirit. Yeah. There you go. Hey, here's the good news: is uh, if I go and I try to fight Oliver, right? It's going to be pretty easy for me to beat Oliver up. I mean, he's a whopping two feet tall. But if Oliver gets behind his dad, that's a different story, right? right? That's a completely different story. Uh, if you're standing there and you're trying to take these things on headstrong and stubborn uh, and looking at the world situation, you're going to get slapped and you're going to lose, right? But if you look at it and you get behind your heavenly father, uh, if you get behind him and you say, all right, I'm going to let him fight this for me, right. you know, it's a lot different. Uh, his hand is a lot bigger than your hand and he's a lot more powerful than you are. Verse yeah, David said the battle's not mine. Yep. Yeah, Battle is the Lord. Verse 21 uh, sums it up nicely. It says, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. That word engrafted uh, mm. is kind of like a seed. You know, you mm. take it in. 
And what is the word of God to us? It's a seed. Uh, it gets planted in our hearts. And grows then, roots. And depending on how you take care of it is, is how much it grows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I would just add, you know, simplistically, you, you have to ingest it. You know, it's got to be in the fertile ground for it to germinate and grow mm-hmm. and take root. It yeah. all has to be inside. So, you're not, mm-hmm. you know, have, having the Bible over here, you know, outside, as Brother Elam, I've heard him say, I guess, dozens of times now he said you know uh, there's a difference between having the bible in your home in your hand or in your heart mm-hmm. there's a huge difference yep. you know you have to have it in your heart you have to be yeah. a doer as he says yeah here. not a hero once again right or and i think deceiving yourself now let me ask you a question guys um i have always been under the impression uh that the book of james as a whole is a very black and white book i mean it's right. very yes. Very, very along. I would say with uh, Jude and along with First uh, John and those books, it's very black and white. And sometimes, if it's not taken correctly, it can be taken very negatively. Uh, but I think a lot of this, this whole chapter, the more I studied it, and then even now uh, discussing it with you guys, it really comes back to uh, is we have been given a tool by God for our life here, and it ultimately. Uh, how we succeed or how we fail is all dependent on how we treat this book. That's right. Uh, because, you know, it's easy to say, I'm a Christian, uh, and I believe in God, and but then when a trial comes, you, you're you nowhere to be found. Uh, it goes back to talking about like a fair-weather Christian. Uh, but, what, but then you have the man of God. Uh, you have those Christians, those wise old people, the Bible call them the hoary head, right? Uh, you have those people that, man, they're going through something, and where do they go? They go straight back to the book uh, because they know where their root is planted. Uh, they know where they're planted, um, and as the song says, they know whom they have believed in, uh, and they're persuaded that he is able. Uh, and the more I read this chapter, the more I study it, uh, it can be easily taken out of context if you take the one or two verses and do, as we like to call, lazy preaching. Uh, but if you read the context and you read the text around it, and you read the whole Bible as a whole, it's really telling you that God has given you a tool. And ultimately, it's up to you whether you succeed or fail. That's right. And then we got the one more, and it's uh, how can we apply the word, to our God, word of God to our lives and be a doer? So, what do you guys think about that? We kind of touched on it a little bit here, about yeah. being a doer, not a hearer. Um, it's one thing to read instructions, right? It was one thing for me to read the instructions on how to put a soccer goal together. Right. It's another thing for me to actually get out there and put it together. Yep. It's one thing for you to read the instructions of your life and then read the instructions, spiritually speaking, of what you're supposed to do, how your walk's supposed to go. Yeah. It's completely another thing to actually take a step and do it. Hmm. Yeah, that's one of the things that we'll deal with in the future, future chapters is does your works match your faith? Mm-hmm. And is, is it being applied? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. I definitely think you know. A lot of times you hear that the Bible is is uh, is our way of life, tells us how to live the life. But if we don't actually apply it, again, we're just hearing it. We're not actually doing it. We're not mm-hmm. growing anywhere. We're not growing in patience, or we're not growing in um, you know God's will for our own life. Yeah, that I mentioned in Sunday school this morning again on the board is the Word of God tells us what to do, and uh, the Holy Spirit allows us and teaches us how to do it personally mm-hmm. in application. and But the thing <coughs> is, we have to be willing to do it, Yeah, whatever it may cost. <coughs> and that and word, then that's that maturing factor. 
that word for Holy Spirit is just such a beautiful word. I believe um, it is parakletos or parakletos, which is a paraclete or a staple, as we would say it. And it's really what binds us together uh, with God. It's the way we can communicate with God. It ties us together with God. Like the staple, if you staple two sheets of paper together, they're, they're together now. Um, and that's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. And that <coughs> gives us the ability to not just read the word, but the Holy Spirit helps us apply it to our hearts and to do the word as well. Any other comments on that, or being a doer and kind of simple? Yeah, it's kind of, it, it, it's almost like a New Testament Proverbs, this book is. Yeah, so yeah, it's pretty much self-explanatory. The problem is putting it to action. Yeah, I think the, the, the famous way of saying it right is, it's easier said than done. Yeah. It's easy to say be a doer. It's harder to be a doer. <clears throat> yeah, and I think, um, you know, in, uh, in contrast to uh, double-minded um, in contrast to, uh, you know, the, the earlier statements here about, uh, uh, you know, kind of being wishy-washy and things of that nature. I think the, the ultimate contrasting term here as far as being a doer and not just a hearer is the, uh, the term here in verse 27, pure religion. Amen. It's pure religion. Pure meaning it's not double. There's one source. There's one outflow of it, one manifestation of it. And uh, even though he gives examples here, he says pure religion, verse 27, and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. And so that's the specifics. Mm -hmm. Um, When you visit the fatherless, you're getting nothing in return. Right. When you visit the widow, you're getting nothing in return other than the the, uh, the credential of pure religion. That's all you're getting from it. And yeah. then he goes on and gives a general description to keep himself unspotted from the world. And so uh, that unspotted from the world and pure religion, those two statements going together, uh, he doesn't give to us, you know, this, this um, blank check, you know, okay, you fill in your own list. No, he says this is, this is patience. Uh, when you're under the, the greatest trial of your life, that's when your purest religion will manifest itself. Mm-hmm. And it's selfless. It's widows, it's orphans, and it's keeping yourself unspotted from the world. Yeah. So, uh, and James goes, had it right, man. He got. Oh, yeah. the, he, I think he he's a mature writer, and uh, I think he knew that. And if you look at this from his perspective, you know, especially, um, you know, all of these people they wound up. You know, of course, there's there's several people named James in the Bible, and all of them were killed. Uh, you got, um, you know, the uh, the son of or the uh, the brother of John the Beloved. Uh, the son of Zebedee, and uh, he wound up uh, working in the church at Ephesus and being such a great man of God, uh, they killed him. He was, uh, mm-hmm. he was one of the, in fact, if you, if you look at that story, um, he was the first martyr. Wow. Yeah. You know, and, and interestingly, when they asked, you know, can one of my sons sit on your left hand and one of my sons sit on your right hand, that's exactly how it turned out mm-hmm. because Jesus asked the question. He said, can they drink of the cup which I've which I'm going to drink and uh, and the answer was we will Mm. and they did and James was the first one to die and John his brother who wanted to sit on the opposite side was the last one to die and uh, uh, so that's the marathon of patience Uh, of course this is different James than this but those guys knew that pure religion was ultimate selflessness Mm -hmm. in in his estimation widows and orphans and in our estimation, it has to be a willingness to, to put others 
first even when when we ourselves are suffering the most yeah yeah and it goes back to as well and to keep unspotted from the world yeah and it goes back to as well um Pastor Bailey, you've said time and time again, and I would encourage you guys, uh, if you're listening, to go on uh, ttinstitute.org and listen to the classes that are there. Uh, just a lot of free information. But uh, he was speaking before about, um, he talked about when the Word of God, the Word of God in, in the Bible is pictured as still water. Um, and it has the reflection to it. And even in verse 24, he says, For he beholdeth himself, and goeth away, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. Uh-huh verse prior to that is talking about a man beholding himself in the glass. Uh, and I speak a lot to young people and I tell them, I was like, it's like when you wake up in the morning, right? I had to do my hair this morning. So I woke up in the morning and I had hair here, hair here. My hair's all crazy. Um, just looks insane, right? You have eye boogers, all that fun stuff. And what happens when you look in the mirror, you see what's wrong right. and you're like, all right, I need to fix this before I go out. Uh, but what he's saying here in the book of James, he's saying, if you read the word of God and nothing changes in your life, you're like a person that goes in the mirror and sees the problems and then walks away and forgets whatever happened. Wow, that's good. Yeah, verse 12, it, it probably helps sum it up too as well. Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life. And there is a crown in the balance here. Mm-hmm. You're perfected. The uh, patience. Her perfecting work is is allowing you to receive eternal rewards, and it is to those which uh, the Lord had promised to them that love Him. And if the Scripture says also, if you love me, you keep my what commandments. Yeah, there is there is a uh, an inseparable tie between when loving God, following Him, that there is inevitably going to be a perfecting work yeah and what's that simple acronym we always teach kids right joy jesus others yourself and that's always how he's always taught is it's always got to be jesus first you got to always have god first and then others going back to what pastor mentioned the pure religion what is it it's visiting the fatherless and the widows and the last thing on that list the last thing should always be yourself yep Great chapter. Great, yeah, it great, is. great chapter. I definitely think, you know, that's what um, the conclusion when we first outlined this was pure religion. You know, yeah. that's what it ultimately came down to. So I definitely enjoyed it. Yep. Definitely enjoyed chapter one. Um, awesome. Any other comments or closing comments? You this this being our first one, let's introduce each other and find out where you can find more of our you know, uh, our uh, links and affiliates as far as uh, our ministries and stuff like that. You want to go start? Yeah, I'll go ahead and start. My name is Zachary Taylor. I'm the youth director here at Brandon Baptist Tabernacle. Um, and uh, if you want any of our information, uh, like I mentioned before, you have the college, which is ttinstitute.org. Uh, we have a newly launched church website, uh, which is brandonbaptisttabernacle.com or .org. Or either way will get you there. Um, I've been here serving for about three years. Um, and I've really uh, just been enjoying my time. And I'm Brad Bailey. I'm the pastor here at Brandon Baptist Tabernacle. And, man, I'm, re- I'm really grateful we're doing this. I think it's going to be a great addition to, to our, uh, our digital ministry here. I think it's going to be great. <laughs> right, my name is Jeremy Boggs and uh, kind of new member here. It's been almost a year. And uh, definitely enjoyed being here and enjoyed growing. And I definitely think, you know, I've been praying for a long time to find a place you know, in a church where I could do something, you know, more than just being a guitar player. And I think this is where I'll ultimately end it up. Yeah. Amen. My name is uh, Nathan Waters, and I've grown up in this church. 
Uh, I've seen people come and go, and I've seen uh, pastors come and go, and uh, I believe that God has uh, brought us this far, and he has great plans for Brandon Baptist Tabernacle, and I'm just excited to have my family plug in here and uh, just to see us all grow in the word and, and in the admonition of the Lord. Amen. And I'm Jesse Hudson, and I appreciate you for listening. If, you've, if you're interested in finding more of our information, you can find us on our website, BrandonBaptistTabernacle.com or TTInstitute.com. Dot com and dot org. Dot org. org. Dot org. Common we'll org. edit that. And, yeah. uh, but I uh, appreciate you listening, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Thank you.